Before the eyes of the world, now look into space, to the moon, and to the planets beyond. This is The Space Shot, episode 426, Andy Weir and Project Hail Mary. I'm John Mulnix. Welcome back, everyone. It has been a long few months since the last episode, and I've decided to wrap up season three for this show. Originally, I'd planned on starting season four last year, but due to COVID, job changes, and a move, most of my time has been eaten up. I've decided to officially end season three in this episode, and today we've got a pop culture and history extravaganza with author Andy Weir. You may remember him from such books and movies as The Martian or his book Artemis. His newest book, Project Hail Mary, releases on May 4th, 2021. Links to Andy's website and a pre-order page for Project Hail Mary are in the show notes. After talking with him about this new book, I am super excited. I've already pre-ordered my copy, and you should totally pre-order a copy of your own. Andy came on the podcast to chat about that book, but we also talked about space history, pop culture, and more. And it was an absolute blast and a great way to officially end season three of the podcast. Yeah, I know I thought I'd started season four, but I'm saving that for the upcoming Space Shuttle series. As Andy said, I can retroactively change this up because I'm a writer slash podcaster. Yesterday was Friday, April 16th, which was the 49th anniversary of the launch of Apollo 16, and there's been a ton of other historical highlights this week, which we touch on briefly in this episode with Andy. There was also some big news yesterday. NASA just announced that SpaceX will be the sole provider for the lunar human landing capability for the Artemis program. I'll have a separate episode with some announcement audio plus analysis here soon. Before we get to my conversation with Andy, there's a trailer for the start of Season 4 of The Space Shot. I'll be releasing a video version of the trailer as soon as I've got a chance to finish it up. Season 4 of the podcast is going to feature an entirely new format for the show. I'll still have interview episodes mixed in, but the history episodes are going to be completely different and way cooler from anything that I've ever done before. I'm really excited to share these with everybody. You go forward this morning in a daring enterprise, and you take the hopes and prayers of all Americans with you as you hurdle from Earth in a craft unlike any other ever constructed. You will do so in a feat of American technology and American will. May God bless you, and may God bring you safely home to us again. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. We've gone for main engine start. We have made it. But, you know, F equals MA is very hard. And that vehicle, from a launch standpoint, is very tricky. There are tremendous aerodynamic pressures on it, and you have to get the, ang the angle at which it is going through the airstream exactly correct, or you'll tear the wings off, or tear the orbiter off the tank. 
I mentioned earlier that the uh, space shuttle is a pretty complicated vehicle, and certainly it uh, was breaking some new frontiers, uh, which John and I being test pilots, that was a great, uh, great mission for us. But when you have something that complicated, uh, that uh, it takes literally hundreds of thousands of people made STS-1 possible, uh, you have to be depending on those folks doing, uh, doing their job right, uh, because you can't check everything yourself. Spacecraft let go for on orbit. This thing is just performing just outstanding. You think about what that flight test did in terms of proving a set of engineering concepts that were nothing more than drawings and people's ideas and whatever. And in one fell swoop, we validated the whole thing. The game in knowledge and the validation of all the Max days of the world in that one short flight test. The Space Shuttle is one of the most incredible flying machines ever constructed. Its complexity, size, and capabilities are still unlike anything that has flown in space. Join me for Season 4 of The Space Shot as we delve into the history of these incredible machines and of the people who made these flights possible. We'll explore the development of the shuttle up through its first space flights. April 2021 marks the 40th anniversary of the launch of STS-1. Let's look back and celebrate the legacy of the program that expanded our knowledge of the cosmos and took generations of astronauts to space for three decades. I believe astronaut John Young said it best at the conclusion of STS-1 when he described the shuttle Columbia. Now, here's my chat with author and fellow space geek, Andy Weir. Enjoy. Today, we've got Andy Weir on the podcast. He is a prolific author. Um, one of my favorite books and even a movie is The Martian. Um, he also wrote Artemis. And then your new book, um, Project Hail Mary, is coming out here on May 4th. So may the 4th be with you. You know, that's pretty cool. Um, Andy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So today uh, we're recording on Friday, the 16th of April, which is the 49th anniversary of Apollo uh, 16. Um, yes, Ken Mattingly cool. finally gets to go to the moon. <laughs> finally. Yeah, he was a little bit overdue. And, you know, that, that I'm glad you mentioned him because during the, the acknowledgments of your bu uh, book, Artemis, you, you call out the Apollo command module pilots. Can That's you right. tell us a little bit about why you did that? Well, I feel like the CMPs don't get as much credit as they should. Um, the, those guys are, uh, you know, for for the benefit of your listeners who aren't utter nerds and haven't spent <laughs> enormous periods of their lives studying the Apollo program, um, uh, the Apollo missions that went to the moon had three uh, crew members each, um, the commander, the lunar module pilot, and the command module pilot. And the commander and the lunar module pilot went down to the moon while the command module pilot stayed in orbit around the moon. 
and then um, then they rendezvoused with the with the with the main ship, and then went back to Earth. Now everybody knows Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, who are the first two you know men on the moon. But you mm-hmm. know sometimes they don't know about Michael Collins, who was the command module pilot, and the CMPs took every bit as much risk as these guys like they were they oh, were yeah. just as likely to die they were you know and um also they were in the um fairly dangerous position that nasa has literally i think never done since of being completely alone on a spacecraft far from earth like um it, they, they, you know, it's just like scuba diving. You have the buddy system. That's why they wanted to have two astronauts on the surface of the moon, so that they wouldn't, so that if something went wrong with one of them, the other one could help them out. But um, yeah, so all those command module pilots spent, you know, a bunch of time in lunar orbit completely by themselves. Mm-hmm. If one of them had a health emergency or something like that, that it would, it would have been extremely bad. Yeah. So, well, not to mention, I mean, they they were the key part of getting everybody back home. Well, sure, they're the command module pilot. <laughs> kind of critical. Well, what's interesting is, um, although they had those titles, um, oftentimes, like they would usually end up doing each other's job. So, for instance, it was very rare for the lunar module pilot to pilot the lunar module. Which, yeah. Usually the commander piloted the lunar module. <laughs> Which is, you know, an interesting way of how they decided to name things. But I, you Well, know. they named things while they were putting the missions together. Well, they, they thought they, they're like, okay, this is how the mission profile is going to work. But then as they worked on it, things changed, but they kept the names, you know. <laughs> Well, I think that was what looking back on like the Apollo program and Jiminy and Mercury is just, you know, like the mission control guys. Um, I interviewed a few people about mission control a while back and just they were putting those procedures together as they were doing things. Yeah. So it was really fly by the seat of your pants kind of yeah. stuff there. and and looking back now i mean like the the systems that they put in place for mission control for you know space flight it seems to worked out pretty dang good so again (laughs) credit where credit's due well a lot of that came from the aviation industry like the Mm -hmm. idea of checklists and like you know good communication with the tower and stuff like that and so it's they took that model and extended it into space travel (laughs) Just a little bit faster, a little bit higher up there. A little faster, a little higher. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you, you know, you, you are, what I, what I appreciate a lot about, you know, your writing is you, you can tell that there's that appreciation for the history and for what makes space flight special. Um, so it's, it's good to hear you nerd out about that stuff because that's what we <laughs> like to do here. Oh, yeah. um, so, you know, other big anniversaries this week too. I mean, 49th anniversary of Apollo 16. We have the 60th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin. Yuri Gagarin. The, I mean, like, yeah, 60 ah, years. Yuri's night. Yeah, I, I sadly didn't get it. This I didn't get a watch this year because we were in the middle of moving on that day. Uh, but you know, I, I celebrated in my own way. But you know, we've got that—the 40th anniversary of STS One. Okay. What, what do these missions mean to you, and how do they inform your work? Uh, well, I mean, those no specific mission, like well, Apollo 13, I guess, informed my work a lot. But just, just. The uh, the 
the the spirit of space exploration and the kind of willingness to take all these huge risks just because we want to we want to get out there uh, informs my work also i guess for me a big thing is like a bunch of people working together for a common goal which is you know and that's one of the big things themes of the martian too is just people coming together to save Mark Watney. So, I mean, that's, and that's one of the things I, you know, appreciate about the space community is, you know, for all our differences for, you know, the times where people bicker about what rockets better for what type of mission overall, it's a pretty amazing thing that's being done. So being able to celebrate that, I think is very important. Side note, you mentioned yeah. that this is also the anniversary of STS-1, which I did not know. Uh, I also didn't know it was the anniversary of Apollo 16. But You're good. Um, You're good. I'm not, I did not know either of those things. <laughs> but, um, but you said that, and I, I said, like, those two have something in common. And then I remembered um, they both had John W. Young. Yes. On them. Yep. Yes. And, and that's what's crazy is, you know, he, oh gosh, it was. He's my favorite astronaut. I agree. I mean, he's flown the I most. I never got you know, to meet him, unfortunately. I, I would have loved to meet him. I was lucky to meet Charlie Duke um, oh, a cool. few years ago at an event at the Cosmosphere. And he was about just the warmest, friendliest person uh, you could ever imagine. So it was awesome to see him. Yep. John Young. I still love the the story about John Young about during the launch of Apollo 16, his heart rate never got above 70. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that's how it was with uh, Columbia, too, for STS-1. Oh, really? Was, yeah, it doesn't uh, surprise me. Cool that guy customer. was like cool as a mountain lake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Totally. And I think there was a um, – I think Bob Crippen had a part of his oral history interview was talking about – the heart rate for that. And I'll have to pull up the exact text because I don't remember it, but I think he kind of chuckled a little bit about, uh, about the discrepancies between his heart rate and John Young's. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's April is a busy, you know, busy week for space history. With, I suppose so. You know, back on Monday, I think it was Monday. Gosh, was it Monday? I think it was Monday was the 40th anniversary of STS one. So it's been a, it's oh, been okay. a busy week. <laughs> um, but then earlier today, actually, too, um, we've got the crew two astronauts getting ready to uh, launch from Kennedy Space Center next week. So yeah. there's there's even more history still being made right now. And I, I kind of want to get, you know, this is something that I'm going to, as, as we dive into season four here in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. whenever I have a guest on, I, I like, I'm going to be asking people, you know, what do they consider the golden era of space flight? Because, you know, we have... 50 years ago, we had all these amazing missions to the moon, mm-hmm. but now we have commercial companies. We have you know private individuals that are going to be going to space. I kind of think we're in the golden age of space flight right now. I'm not sure it will. It depends on your definition of golden age of space flight. Sure. Like in terms of sheer awesomeness, it's hard to beat the first time humanity sets foot on the moon. Totally. Right? I mean, that's pretty hard to beat. But uh, if you're talking about just... Like you, you could say that we are currently in the golden age of air travel, right? Fair. It's trivially easy and comparatively cheap. You don't have sure. to be like super wealthy and anything like that. So um, you, you could make that argument. And so I think uh, by that same logic, we're still not quite at the golden age of space travel. It's going to be a little while, but okay. we're headed there. Okay. So you think our best is, we've still got the best days ahead of us. <laughs> yeah. In terms of space travel, sure. Definitely. I think the best days will happen once uh, the cost of 
getting to space is something a middle-class person can afford, maybe as a once-in-a-lifetime vacation, but still something they can afford. Like, you're like, hmm, do I want to spend for, – for vacation this year, do I want to go to uh, Paris or space? You know, <laughs> like when, when you get to that level – then I think it's safe to say we're in the golden age. <laughs> Hopefully here soon. I would love to uh, vacation on the moon. I think that would be pretty cool. <laughs> well, that's going to be a little further. <laughs> a vacation in space is one thing. Vacation on the moon, that's a little bit further out, I think. Well, hope, hopefully despite, it'll happen. <laughs> despite the book I wrote about it. <laughs> Oh, I think that was what was the like the twenty eighties, if memory. Yeah, it takes place in the twenty eighties. Okay. I, I I would love to get to that so point. So I'll fingers be, crossed. I'll be dead by then, or or if I'm not dead, I'll be really old. <laughs> be hey, it's like, a perfect place to retire. Lower gravity, old. <laughs> <laughs> you could still do it. You could still you could uh, prove everybody. Uh, it'd just be a test case for living longer. In I'll space. be calling. I mean, if I in 2080, I would turn 108. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that could be doable <laughs> theoretically. Although I'm probably not going to be in any uh, condition to uh, you know. Lift off. Lift off, <laughs> yeah. The G-forces would be a little extreme. I, I would definitely I, agree with that. Yes, but who knows? Maybe by then they have new technology. But uh, I'm not going to hold my breath for a trip to space when I'm 108. Well, there, there's always a chance. Although John Glenn was approximately that age. <laughs> he, was, he was pretty old. I, gosh, he was like 70. Oh, gosh. I forget his, his, his exact age. But yeah, he was up there. Yeah, yeah he was utterly... Yeah. And who knows, who knows with all of the, you know, the technology that's coming, you know, that's being developed, we, we, we could be living a lot longer than we could ever dream. So Yeah, everybody always talks about that, but it never really happens. I don't think the escalator is going to happen during our lifetime, but who knows the lifespan escalator. So the idea is there is going to be some generation that is born and the life expectancy of human being. We will reach a point where our medical technology is extending the life expectancy of humans faster than one year per year. You oh, know? That's wild. So one year of technology will develop more than an average of one year increase in human life expectancy. I've never heard that before. That sounds yeah, – It's, I, it's I just look a theory. <laughs> but the idea is – so there will be a generation of people who are born – who will just be on the escalator, like, um, and by that they mean that just like they will never reach the average lifespan for whatever year they're in. That's a you wild know? thought experiment. Yeah, I mean they'll still die and stuff. From it's not like a guarantee yeah. of living, but but it's just interesting. It's almost like the ship of Theseus, but for humans. <laughs> oh, well, that's that's a that's a whole different thing. <laughs> The ship of Theseus is, uh, yeah, that's a, yeah, it, it's like, I, I've had so many conversations with fellow nerds about, hey, let's talk about the transporter in Star Trek. And I'm like, no. And they say like, why, why not? And I'm like, let me spare you about 20 minutes of discussion. Blah, blah, blah. What is consciousness? Ship of Theseus, existential dread. Let's have, let's go get a drink. Yeah, like, we're, we're not beaming down. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, I'm just saying that that's like, that's how the conversation always ends up going. You're like, okay, well, you know, let me, let me save you about 20 steps here. What is human consciousness? You don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. It's not really well-defined. 
there we go. It's a it's a great plot device. It's a great, <laughs> yeah. you know, getting from point A to point B. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and but the problem is that like within the canon of the show, they've had times where there are transporter accidents that like duplicated a person yep. or or like split them into good and evil and whatever. And you're like, well, now it starts to really be like what is human consciousness? And, and don't you know any discussion of transporters? You don't ever want to stray into the Tuvix uh, uh, <laughs> storyline from Voyager. Yeah, Tuvok? Uh, what? what? Tuv- was it Tuvix or? Well, was, I, uh, I don't know the storyline you're talking oh, about, gosh, but there's okay. the character Tuvok, who's a Vulcan. Yep. Is yep. that who we're talking about? And he gets like merged with Neelix, I think, in a transporter accident. It's been <laughs> years since I've seen the episode. Oh but- wow. It, oh, it that's bad. why it's called Tuvix. Yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Oh wow! Yeah, no, I don't even want to think about that. I'm gonna have to go rewatch it though. Actually, now that I was talking talking to you about it, because it's been years since I've seen that episode. So hopefully, I didn't just totally butcher what happened in that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't remember that one. It's probably watched, for the best. <laughs> I've watched every form of Star Trek. Ever, you know, I mean, like every episode of every Star Trek show ever made, you know, I've watched all of them. <laughs> yep. Same here. It's yeah. been a while since I've seen some of them, but, but yeah. I haven't watched Voyager since literally since it aired. I think. You got to go back through and watch it then. Just pull okay. up the Tuvix episode. I forget what it's called, but yeah, you'll, it's you'll, probably uh, on Netflix, right? I mean, oh, I would most, I, most of the other Star Treks or, are on Netflix yeah, somewhere. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, uh, I'm a huge Trekkie, so it's all I can oh, nerd good. out about that for, uh, for hours and same with star wars too so i i won't even get into that debate though because you know it is if people are enjoying a story i think at the end of the day mm-hmm. that's what matters the most whether yeah, you're a fan like, of yeah and also for me you know i often get asked star wars or star trek and i always answer doctor who <laughs> <laughs> that's great and see that's something i haven't gotten into as much just because there's so many different iterations and i i don't know i mean maybe i'll pick your brain on this every episode <laughs> episode of doctor who i've watched uh like all of the first everything that except for the like hundred or so episodes that the bbc literally lost oh no i didn't even know that was a thing oh yeah they lost a whole bunch of episodes oh my gosh from the late 1960s um, oh wow because they didn't you know back then it was kind of the era of live tv where they would grudgingly record things in advance and then play them once. And then they didn't have the concept of reruns or anything like that. They'd store them off in a warehouse somewhere, which then burned down. And so, and I think they accidentally deleted a bunch of things too. It was kind of neat, this hunt for um, missing uh, Dr. Who episodes. Like they recently found uh, a serial, like a six part, like just a single Dr. Who storyline, a six part storyline. Because, well, first off, all of the audio is still intact for all of the episodes ever. Because um, back in the 60s, there were many nerds as well. There weren't VCRs or anything like that, but nerds would tape onto cassette tape, would just tape the audio off of the TV. And so they have still all of the audio. They just don't have video, right? And so they've done things where they make like animations that use the audio and stuff. So that's kind of cool. But anyway, there was this uh, television station in Algeria who found, who went through, who was going through all their old crap and they found an Arabic dubbed. Um, version of what turned out to be a missing Doctor Who serial. Oh my gosh. And so they sent that 
to the BBC, and then the BBC laid the exist the the audio tracks that they had from fans on it. Oh wow! And now they had recovered that. <laughs> that is so cool. It's really interesting how the yeah. There was another one they found, which was um a guy. It was a, a from the Pertwee era, third Doctor, where they um where it was it was deemed lost and it was gone forever. But then it turned out that some guy in I think Toronto impressed his British friend by using his newfangled, extraordinarily expensive video recorder (laughs) to record um, the the whole uh, six-part Doctor Who serial off of TV, and then they could watch it at a time other than when it was broadcast. Oh, (laughs) my God. What a concept. (laughs) Yeah, and those tapes survived, and they managed to extract the data from them because it's not like VHS or anything, but they got the data off of it, and they were able to recover the Pertwee episode. Anyway, you probably want to talk about, like, my books. (laughs) No, you're good. I I love this stuff. (laughs) Doctor Who all day, but my publisher might get mad. (laughs) I I love that stuff. One last question for Doctor Who. Like, I've heard if you're going to start it, you don't necessarily have to start at the beginning beginning like way back in the day but you want right. to start with like a new season when there's like a new doctor well i mean it, so yeah you have to really love doctor who to enjoy the you know the original stuff okay. the early seasons <laughs> i grew up watching it so i mean for me it's all glorious but it, you have to love it to watch the the pre um, 2005 stuff. Okay. So instead, I would recommend. Uh, I would actually just recommend people start with the uh, with Christopher Eccleston and work okay. forward from there. Um, uh, the first episode uh, of the of the of the reboot. Um, well, it's actually not even a reboot; it's a continuation. Sure. But the first episode of that is called Rose, and it aired in 2005. Okay, and I've seen the that first series, and I think it was just to the point where. He switched over, so I'm gonna have to he continue watching it. Exactly. Oh, well, yeah. You were about to enter the the golden era of the reboot, <laughs> which is David Tennant, who pretty much universally everyone agrees is the best Doctor of the reboot. That's what everybody has said. So yeah. I'm excited. I need to watch those because that's the point that I stopped at, and I need to pick it back up. So that's all my to do. Just really awesome. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad to hear it's not just, you know, my nerdy friends that like Doctor Who. So well, I am nerdy and possibly your friend. So I think it's still just your nerdy friends who like Doctor Who. I'll count, I, I would love to count you as a friend. Yeah, that works. That works. Oh, my goodness. Well, my my girlfriend is going to probably kill me that I'm going to add that to our queue, but yeah, she could, she, I, she'll watch it. She's she's up for that. All right. um, well, yeah, speaking, you know, we don't want to make your publisher too mad. So <laughs> right. Let us begrudgingly talk about my stuff. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of important. You've got a new book coming out. I do. Um, The synopsis, it's pretty wild. Um, So, you know, what is your book about? Just give us a 50,000 foot view. Um, well, um, an, uh, a man wakes up with complete amnesia, doesn't have any idea who he is, where he is, or why he's there. Uh, he quickly realizes he's aboard a spacecraft, and over time, his memories start coming back to him, and he realizes he's on a last-ditch, desperate effort to save humanity from an existential threat. No, no pressure. Yeah, I mean that would <laughs> that would stress me out, and I've I have lived yeah, through twenty twenty, so that. Yeah. <laughs> That would be one heck of a start to your day. Um, 
What were some, you know, inspirations for Project Hail Mary? From one of the things I saw, it looks like there's international, like some international partners that were involved with the the spacecraft design. Well, I mean, it, within this within the story, mm-hmm. yes. I mean, mm-hmm. in real life, no, I just kind of went off and nerded, nerded out in a corner for a while. But no, within the story, it's a fully international effort. Basically, um, this is not a huge spoiler, um, but basically there is an alien life form that's like a microbe, not intelligent, um, mm-hmm. just like a mold kind of that infects, not infects, but lives on the surface of stars. Okay. And it's like an, it's like algae in the ocean, but it lives on this, uh, lives on stars. Oh. And it spores outward, you know, it reproduces and it spores outward to go seed to other stars. And okay. our star has been um, infected with this. And the this this algae-like substance, this mold, uh, like doubles its population every, you know, certain amount of time. And so eventually it gets to the point where the solar output is being affected. Like oh, the sun wow. is dimming because there's so much of this. It's like an algae bloom, but on the sun. And um, yeah, and and if they don't do something about it, if they don't find a way to stop it, they're going like Earth is going to get too cold. Um, We'll basically have another ice age or or maybe even worse and food chains are going to collapse and everything is going to die. So they have to find out like what's going on now they uh they notice that all of the local stars like alpha centauri sirius and so Mm -hmm. on going around looking at all the stars in this in our area are also dimming right they they have all also been infected with astrophage except tau ceti for some reason tau ceti has not lost any luminance at all now the uh, the life form that does this has a built-in, like naturally evolved system for storing enormous amounts of energy and then using that to propel itself through space to get to other stars, right? So okay. they use it as a spacecraft fuel to make uh, humanity's first interstellar ship to send a team of scientists to Tau Ceti to try to figure out why it is um, not affected. Oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> and our hero is the only survivor of that trip. Um, they were put in comas. Um, it takes about, uh, it takes, the, sh- the ship is named the Hail Mary. And it sure. takes the Hail Mary, like, th- uh, from Earth's point of view, about 13 years to reach Tau Ceti. From the crew's point of view, it's about four years due to time dilation. Because sure. they get going real fast. And but four years in a very small confined spacecraft for various reasons they they needed to put the crew in in basically uh, medically induced comas. That I think that's a you know that's something that we're going to have to contend with if we do longer duration missions is in the future who knows what we're going to have to do to keep people alive during a long term mission. So I'm I am super excited just hearing your the synopsis here about that. I can we just fast forward to May fourth. <laughs> Let's skip the rest of April. We'll get right to May. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Five, four, three, two, one. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. End of death. Okay, we checked all four systems, and there you go on modulation, all four, and King was a go. Roger, you're locked. We're here also. And that's who I think was responsible for Pearl Harbor. <laughs> and we're back, everybody. Uh, we had a, a brief uh, break there. Um, I, I believe we were talking about differences between 
your approaches to writing uh, Project Hail Mary and The Martian and Artemis. Um, um, well, uh, yeah. I mean, they, there there wasn't much difference. I mean, my favorite part of writing is the research. Yes. So for The Martian, just kind of coming up with a, with a um, you know, a, how do we put humans on Mars? How do we get them back? That, that was the fun part. And actually the genesis of the story, I was researching that just because. I, I wasn't <laughs> thinking of a story. I just did that because I'm a dork. And then um, for Artemis, I was thinking, what will humanity's first city that's not on Earth be like? You know, why will it exist? What will it be like? Where will it be? And so on. That ultimately led to Artemis. For Project Hail Mary, it was actually a um, – I had attempted to write a book called Jack earlier between the Martian and Artemis, and I failed. It was not good. And so the, I actually had a call my publisher and, and ask them, hey, can can I just cancel this and work on a different book? And they said, okay. Um, it was, uh, I got like 70,000 words into it for reference. The Martian oh, is about 100,000 words. Yeah. So it was a huge amount of work that I just shelved, but it wasn't working. The characters weren't good. The story wasn't good. The It was like 70,000 words in and still in the first act. So it was going to oh, be man. this tome that nobody wanted to read, <laughs> right? And so I, I ditched it. Right. And, and that, that, that hurt, you know, but, um, uh, there were a couple of concepts in it that still seemed really cool. And one of them is a spacecraft fuel that basically did mass conversion to provide, um, thrust. And that ultimately became the, you know, in, in Jack, it was an alien technology, but in uh, project Hail Mary, it's just an alien mold. Um, but it, it, it's really cool. And then, um, cause I was thinking about it and I was like, oh man, I, I wish I could make a book about that stuff in Jack, which was in Jack, <laughs> it was called black matter and it okay. would just turn any electromagnetic waves that hit it into more black matter via oh, mass wild. conversion. And then you could, you could get them out the other way. I, um, but, um, I was like, man, it'd be cool if we had that, it would just take like a few kilograms of the stuff. You could send like a big old crew to Mars. I mean, it'd be awesome. It would yeah. completely revolutionize everything. And then I'm like, okay, well, is there any way I could write a story about that? Nice. I'm like, well, but that's an alien technology. And I, I don't, you know, I don't want to try to write Jack. It didn't work. Sure. Um, and I'm like, well, it is a substance that turns energy into more of itself. That sounds like life. I mean, that's what humans do. Yeah. We turn energy into more humans, and <laughs> right, and, <laughs> and and so I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's a life form. Okay, let's say it's like a, a mold or or something like that. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Well, why does mold need so much energy, and where does it get it? Ah, yeah. both of those questions answer each other. I'll say it lives on the surface of stars. Yep. So that's how it gets all the energy and it needs it because it spores out to other stars. Okay, this works. And let's say we get a hold of some of that stuff and start using it to go to Mars and whatever. And then we could have cool stuff. And I'm like, oh, but we'd need to be really careful because it would be disastrous if that got into our sun. And then I'm like, wait a minute, disaster is where stories come from. <laughs> so that's new awesome. plan. <laughs> that is so cool. We don't get a hold of it until we, you know, we get a hold of it as a secondary to us noticing that our sun is getting Something's dimmer. Up. I like it. Something is yeah. up. That, that is so is cool. Right. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Like I do a lot of research. Uh, the first season of this podcast was an episode a day and I was researching, writing and doing an episode every day for an entire year. Yeah. Like the research part. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I get how that is. Sometimes you just want to look up something just because. So I, yeah, I really enjoy the research. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. So I love going way down the rabbit hole, like only about like a small <laughs> percentage of all the stuff I work out and math out. Like I, like for this, for, for project Hail Mary, I actually did all the math on how quickly astrophage, that's the name of the life form. Sure. Um, how quickly astrophage could, um, could collect energy given its size, you know, and its proximity, you know, it's on the sun and how fast does it take it before it can reproduce? How does it reproduce? You know, oh, that's awesome. how, you know, okay, it needs to be able to survive a trip to another star. Well, it can maintain its own life, but it still needs energy. Okay, well, it needs a certain amount of energy to last a certain amount of time. The main problem is going to be it's going to be losing heat via black body radiation. Uh, but if it's traveling really fast, <laughs> then like time dilation will make the time that it experiences going between stars lower. And just like all this stuff never makes it into the book. But that's so cool, though. <laughs> I, I love hearing about like that creative process because, I mean, for you, when you're doing something like that, you have to be fleshing out this entire universe to make what you're doing work. Well, I try to just stick to science, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm like, okay, well, this is a life form and it evolved to do this. So I'll come up with something sensible for that. I don't need to provide the reader with the, you know, the DNA sequence. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, well, it's sensible. And then uh, everything else kind of spreads from that. I try That's to awful. I try to minimize the number of like BSs in my story. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always appreciate that. The, no uh, techno babble too. That's always nice, <laughs> right? From a Star Trek fan, interesting. Uh, see, I, I love techno babble. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Sometimes it just gets a bit too much. Yeah. <laughs> Got to reverse the polarity of the neutron flow with a tachyon oh, beam gosh. emission. Yeah, right. I think for me the the and this was less techno babble, more just a bad plot point. But the in the Kelvin reboot of Star Trek, the red matter that they could you know destroy a planet with is like a tiny little drop. Yeah. Yet they've got this massive like yeah, exercise like, why did you ball. You carry like, that what? much red matter around. <laughs> hey, I'm a writer. I can retroactively explain anything. I can say like, oh, red matter is only stable beyond a certain volume. <laughs> Like I can say, it's the only oh, way to dang. keep red matter stable is to have that large a volume. Oh, and he took it. a little sample from the supply because they were immediately going to use it. And now that just go. totally ruined my argument. Thank I'm you. Sorry. <laughs> that's yeah. so great. I have no reason to suspect that's canon, but I just came up with a reason for we'll, you. We'll make it so. We'll make it so. <laughs> yeah. I like to come up with head canon, you know, um, for things. I forgot one of the. Oh, I came up with a whole reason why the Mocklins in uh, the Orville are, are, you know, why there are females in their species at all. Okay. Considering they are hermaphrodite, you know, it's yeah, like, yeah. or they're males and, and how that happened and, and why there's discrimination against, I came up with this whole thing. <laughs> I, I love the Orville. I'm so excited yeah. for the next season. I think that show doesn't get enough love. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it does get the love it deserves. It's lots of, lots of love from lots of geeks. That's true. Well, just outside of, you know, the, the typical community, I guess. So yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I got to get my girlfriend on that one too. It's a good <laughs> show to the list. Um, so, I mean, basically, you know, I just kind of want to end on a few quick questions uh, from social media. If you're all right with that. Sure. Sweet. All right. So this uh, question is coming in from Fritz. Um, he was asking about in the 1960s, there were a lot of like aggressive human missions that proposed to Mars. Um, Jiminy and Flim, to name two of them, is what he said. Um, are there any of your like favorite aggressive human missions to another planet? Hmm. Well, I mean, 
there have been a lot of really weird concepts proposed, but I particularly liked the idea of the nuclear pulse engine where they yeah. where they would just set off a bunch of <laughs> nuclear bombs behind the ship and then use that as propulsion. And I'm like, it doesn't get much more Cold War space technology than that. <laughs> I, I'm waiting for that uh, that idea to drop in another season of for all mankind. So maybe, maybe we'll <laughs> yeah, there we see go. That. <laughs> there we go. Oh man. Um, and then you know, another question here too, when you originally wrote the Martian back in 2011 or was it 2011? Well, I, I started like in 2009 and I finished okay. in early 2012, I think. Okay. So I mean, a little over a decade ago, private, private companies like SpaceX had barely even got to orbit. Um, here, you know, here we are a decade later with humans, pretty regularly launching on commercial spacecraft now how have those advancements like surprised you or they have have they not surprised you you know what what would be your take on that it just didn't occur to me that the uh, commercial space flight would advance so quickly um i'm glad it did but it it makes the martian kind of seem dated you're like okay by the 2030s when it takes place commercial space travel is going to be much more common of course i can just you know, like I said, I'm a writer. I can retroactively <laughs> explain anything. I can always say it's like, well, um, you have no idea like how Hermes was built, right? Sure. So that could have all been like commercial contracts, just like you know, SpaceX and companies like it oh, launching and assembling Hermes. But Hermes itself is is a NASA project. Yeah. But I will admit that's like not what I was thinking at the time I wrote it. Also, I was a, a little bit, I mean, even at the time I wrote it, I knew I was being a little out of date. Like, I honestly think in reality, the first humans to Mars mission will be a large international thing. It'll be sure. like, because it's so expensive and it'll be like, oh, okay, the US, Russia, you, the, you know, ESA, JAXA, maybe even the Chinese Space Agency, you know, um, we might all get together and, and do one you know, big old awesome humans to Mars mission. That's how I think it will actually happen. But in the Martian, I shamelessly and flagrantly evoked the feeling of the Apollo era. Um, (laughs) So I did it on purpose that way, just to kind of, you know, bring back, you know, that feeling of, you know, rah, rah, NASA, you know, flight controllers and, and, you know, astronauts and, you know, America and so on. Sure. As someone who, when I first read The Martian, I was actually, it was during finals uh, one week for school and Mm -hmm. I just was having a hard time getting through studying. I'm like, you know what? I need to take a break. I've heard good things about this book. So I downloaded it, read it in a day (laughs) and ended up passing all my finals. So I I attribute that success to just taking a break and reading The Martian. So if if you haven't (laughs) done that already, you should do that for the listeners here today. Okay, Um, there you go. (laughs) Or maybe your final was on... You know, you know, it turned out to be a bunch of trivia questions about Mars, <laughs> and you're like, "Wow, that was really well." Uh- <laughs> that so, oh gosh, one of the finals had to do. I think I was writing an essay on Hannah Arendt and the banality of evil. So it was some political theory, heavy duty stuff. So it was definitely a. Uh, that sounds like. <sighs> Straight up, like coffee talk mumbo, you know, coffee shop mumbo jumbo. It's like the banality of evil. Today we will discuss how lame it is to simply be evil. It was. 
It was a lot of oh man, yeah, that that was a tough one to get through. But hey, I did it, so <laughs> hey, I appreciate the uh, the palate cleanser for my mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, Andy, this has been awesome. I oh, I look forward you. to having you on. Hopefully, again in the future. I I love chatting. Maybe next time we just nerd out about other stuff. Just once once per book. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, oh dang it well you got to get to writing then <laughs> i guess so <laughs> oh my goodness well andy thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure well thank you for having me i had a great time that's it for this episode be sure to subscribe to the space shot so you never miss an episode i'd love it if you could leave a review in apple podcasts reviews help more people find out about the show I've got a number that you can call or text with questions or comments. Send me a message at 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'll try to get back to you as soon as I can. You can also connect with the podcast online. All of the social media links for the show are in the show notes. Until next time, I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side. 